there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Muhammad Ali toured Africa as President Carter's official envoy. The legendary nightclub Studio 54 held a giant party to celebrate its last night in business. Afghanistan declared martial law, and when the 13th Winter Olympic Games kicked off in Lake Placid, New York, the U.S. beat the USSR in the celebrated miracle on ice. And while all of that was happening in the world, here's what you could see in movie theaters in February of 1980. Hey, I'm Drew McQueenie. Welcome to 80s All Over, Episode 2. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you, sir? Hi, Drew. What's up with you this week, man? Nothing. Just um, a movie I co-produced played in London just about a couple hours ago, so I'm juggling 18 different fun things today. And I mean that. That sounded sarcastic, but I wasn't being sarcastic. Today's been a busy day. Absolutely. Well, first, I guess let's get started today by discussing our first mistake. We missed a movie in our first episode, and that brings up kind of an interesting point, because we're working from a number of different resources when we put together this podcast. So we use the best release date information that we have. When you're talking about release dates from 36 years ago, the records aren't perfect. So thank you to Andrew Carden on Twitter for bringing up a film that should have appeared on the first episode. And that film is Windows. Uh, and if there's ever been a film that deserves to be forgotten completely, this is probably it. It is noteworthy in that it it was the debut, I believe it was the directorial debut of a remarkably talented cinematographer named Gordon Willis, who most people, many, many film fans will know as one of Woody Allen's, in my opinion, finest collaborators. And The Godfather and The Godfather too. I mean, the guy is a titan, but I've seen Windows and it is a just a skanky little movie that's all about gay panic. Talia Shire stars in it. It's pretty clearly one of those things where when you see it, you realize Willis is uh, not meant to be a director. They're radically different skill sets. There's some element of magic, I think, in making a film that actually feels like it's alive and living and breathing. And you can be as talented as Gordon Willis is and still not get that part of it completely right. Let's, uh, let's jump into this week's movies. This is a huge week for us. This, to me, is what I wanted the show to be, which is there's so many movies and they're so different and it is a real indicator of just how weird release schedules are. All of this stuff playing in theaters at roughly the same time, it's kind of mind-boggling. Yes, and the film that we're going to start off with is not something that I saw when I was a kid. I, uh, Drew, I don't know, you watched some pretty twisted stuff when you were a kid, but uh, I would not have seen Paul Schrader's American Gigolo as a child. So why don't you tell our listeners what you think of this film? Okay, well, first let me strip down to my underwear and I'm going to pose in front of a mirror while I do this. You know who I am. I know who you are. I know what you're thinking. His name is Julian Kay. Is it what you expected? His business is pleasure. Hello, Judy. You're very sexy lady. Very good looking woman. He is the American Gigolo. Hello, girls. Look, I, I saw this on video, I think, about a year and a half after it came out. It was one of those movies I wasn't supposed to see, but I knew the theme song because I was totally head over heels in love with Debbie Harry from Blondie. And anything that involved Blondie, I knew about. So that song was a huge song already. I also knew that the movie was about sex, and so that was, why wouldn't I want to watch that? But it was one of those movies that, we've got a couple of them this week, but it's one of those movies where sex is a real bummer. Uh, for all the heat that this film is supposedly about, and for all the sexual tension in the movie, 
it's really kind of grimy and a turnoff and yeah, unpleasant. Very true. It's not a very, <laughs> for a movie about sex, it's very clinical and icy cold. And I don't know if that's by design, but it certainly is not an appealing movie. I know it was a popular movie. It made a lot of money. Do you think it's well regarded now? I don't think, I mean, as, as Paul Schrader certainly is, but. I think it fits right into his work because he has this real strange sort of moralistic background. It comes from, you know, he was a Quaker. He was raised without films or pop culture of any kind and got to be a certain age and moved to the city and went insane because all of a sudden he was overwhelmed by pornography and by sexual imagery and by pop culture. And all of it just kind of hit him like a train. And I think that's in a lot of his early work. And there's also this sense that his work deals with uh, how people view society moralistically and where they fit in it and how some people just don't fit at all. And when you look at like Rolling Thunder or Taxi Driver or Hardcore or this film, you, you really clearly see a guy wrestling with how sex fits into society. Also, this was that era where there was a lot of male nudity. I think last week we talked about an abundance of dong. I will say that for the late 70s, early 80s, there was a plethora of dong in movies. It was just everywhere. Right. This is another one of those movies that made up that got, you know, notices for it. And there was reviews that specifically mentioned it. And it was meant to be this very sexually frank thing. And you look at it now and it feels kind of tame. Yeah. Well, it's one of the earliest Jerry Bruckheimer productions. And I remember uh, not discovering this film probably till I was in my 20s. Well, I knew of it beforehand, but I never really cared enough to dig it out. And I probably saw it on cable one night and I thought, oh, wow, yeah, 1980. I remember this one. I've never seen it. Plop. Like it, it's a, it reminds me of like an Adrian Lyne movie, not a Paul Schrader movie. And I think that's that's kind of an 80s signature that we're going to see a lot of is that sheen, that sort of perfume ad. Everything's very slick. What would your advice be to our listeners if they've not seen or heard of American Gigolo? starring Richard Gere, Lauren Hutton, and Hector Elizondo. Would you recommend that they dig it up? I think so. I think it's one that, especially if you're interested in the career of Schrader, and I think he's a guy that people should be aware yes. of and they should know his work. If you're going to dig through Paul Schrader's complete filmography, this should be in the bottom third. <laughs> it's definitely a signature piece. Yeah, absolutely. It's- I agree. Let's move into movie number two of February 1980, and this is where Weinberg starts to shine, baby, because I had no interest in American Gigolo, but I'll tell you what I did see. John Carpenter's The Fog. This is KB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. I have anecdotes galore about this film, but I would like you to share your uh, your experiences first, because mine might take a few moments. Well, this was one that I saw with a friend and a friend's older brother. I, I think this is going to be a running theme through a lot of these movies. I was not supposed to see this when I saw it. I had seen Halloween by this point and had constant ongoing nightmares about it. And my friend's older brother took us to see this one. And I really liked it. I thought it was very scary in the theater, but it didn't stick to me the same way. And I found that interesting. I thought for sure it would like supersede Halloween, but Halloween remained the nightmare. That was the one that still like scared the shit out of me on an actual ongoing personal level. The fog was fun in the theater, but then just slid right off the other side. Okay. Are, are you done? I I am done. <laughs> because I saw this with my sister. We went to see something else, and I don't remember what. I begged her to see this. It scared the shit out of me, and it was like a typical sitcom story where I was a nervous wreck all night, and my sister was like, if you tell mom you're scared, I'll punch you, because then she'll know we went to the wrong movie. I mean, I'm nine years old. The scene where the old lady gets yanked out the door gave me palpable, memorable nightmares that I that to this day I still could write into storyboards if I wanted to. Like movies that we love when we're young, um, a lot of times we revisit them at certain points in our life. And I probably saw The Fog when I was 8, and then again when I was 16, 28, 38, 40, and at every stage of my life. And the more I learn about the film, and the more I learn about the reshoots and the problems that Carpenter had getting it made, I still absolutely love it. 
I, I don't think it ranks in his top three or top five, but I think it might be his most underrated horror film. Uh, the Fog is about a gang of um, supernatural leper ghosts that invade a quaint town uh, on the anniversary of their untimely demise. Uh, there are surprises. There are twists. Uh, it's old-fashioned ghost story, but it also has some gore, which were part of the reshoots. And um, I think it's a nice marriage of like old-school creepy and then what was then becoming very popular, which was more graphic, visceral, gory, and explicit violence. It's got a great cast. I mean, Adrian Barbeau owns it. But Drew, who do you love in this movie? Well, I, I like Jamie Lee Curtis a lot in it. And I like that she is a such a different character here than she is in um, Halloween. She really was, at this point, one of those people that I would go see a movie for. I like the supporting cast in the film. I think it's, you know, the older cast works well. The guys that are keeping the secrets about, you know, why these ghosts are there. There was something about it that didn't sit right with me as I went back to it over time. And it's weird because this is one of those movies that I've had sort of a love falling out of love, getting back in love relationship with over the years. Um, And a lot of it is years later, as you said, once I started hearing stories about how the film kind of there were two rounds of shooting and basically rebuilt the film. I can appreciate that those are the thumbprints that that you see on the movie that don't work. And I kind of came back around now and can admire it for what it is, which is when it's on fire, the imagery in it is so good and so strong that, yeah, it's it works as just kind of a classic campfire ghost story. And the nod to that with John Hausman is, I think, very important because it kind of calls the shot and tells you what you're watching. And I can forgive it anything I don't like about it at this point because I do like so much of the rest of it. It seems like Carpenter's original goal was to combine old and new. Well, actually, his original plan was not to do gore at all, but that he had gotten studio notes. These slasher movies are doing well, uh, and we would like The Fog to have a little bit more gore. He wasn't thrilled with it at the time. I, I think he's cool with it now, the final cut now. And, Drew, I think you'd agree, it's definitely one of his most beautiful scores. score and it's and it's especially for the money really beautifully photographed the uh, the most impressive thing about it is the fog itself is the way he uses fog in the movie and manages to photograph it and manages to make it feel like he has some control over it uh and it's got a, a sense of intelligence or malevolence to it which is pretty wild because this isn't cg and it's not an age where you can just punch a button and make it happen uh, it's a practical effect, and it's a really gorgeous photographic practical effect. Yeah, and you start, like, the effort that it must have taken to get those shots perfectly the first time, uh, because you can't reset fog quickly. You can't. You just got to wait. Well, I guess you could blow some fans. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, if you've never seen the fog and you're in the mood for something that's mostly old-fashioned with a good slice of gore, I, I highly recommend it. I think it, and I think it holds up really well now too. And that's my favorite thing. It's not just I loved it then and I'll tolerate it now, but I, I think the fog is still a very entertaining ghost story. Well, our next film. This is a comedy that was written into. I say comedy. I that's how it was sold. I would argue it's not particularly funny as a comedy, but a film written and directed by Anne Bancroft. Starring Dom DeLuise called Fatso. Once upon a time, there was a little boy who loved to eat. And so he grew up to be a big boy who loved to eat. Yeah, Dom DiNapoli loved to eat. And then one day, he met Lydia. And love became his steady diet. Lydia. Lydia. My name is Dom. Dom DeLuise, M. Bancroft, Candy Azara, and Ron Carey in Fatso from 20th Century Fox. It's basically about a, a guy named Dom who is constantly eating and gigantically fat and whose wife is trying to get him to stop. And that's the main tension of the film. I find it kind of mean-spirited, but I also find it really panderingly sappy, and it's a strange movie. Yeah, tonally, it is all over the place. I saw it when I was a kid, and I thought it was very funny. 
as a kid, you don't care. As an adult, you start to realize, hey, wait, that might. Well, there's an after school special quality to it. It's a it's a an expose on what it's like to be a fat man who can't stop eating. And it's a little insincere in that. I think, you know, Bancroft, obviously, uh, she and Don DeLuise knew each other as performers first and Don DeLuise and Mel Brooks knew each other. And the idea that, you know, she was making this movie and he was playing a character that was so close to himself in some elements. You can't help but feel like there's something personal at work here. But then the reality of the movie is so weird that it's hard to make it. It's hard to see what is personal to them because I don't. I don't believe the reality of the movie at all. It's a very weird world that it's set in. This was one that I saw on cable, and it was about that time when I started to like really become a movie junkie who would watch anything. I didn't care what it was, and especially if I recognized anybody in it, I would absolutely watch it. And it was one of those I sat through and just thought, "Oh, okay, I totally don't understand that movie." And going back to it and seeing it since, I, I don't think they had a handle on it. I think it holds up a little better than you would think for like a, an obscurity like this. I, I watched this. I revisited this and Hot Stuff on the same night. <laughs> that's a uh, that's a hell of a double feature. Okay, the next one is a movie that I absolutely loved as an eight-year-old. My cousin and I went to see it, and then for the next two weeks, we used to jump around the living room, uh, bouncing off walls, doing catchphrases. It is an obscure John Ritter comedy called Hero at Large. Somewhere in the heart of this city, in a small shop closing for the night, a robbery is in progress, but help is on the way. Mind if I drop in? Captain Avenger! John Ritter is Steve Nichols. How about that? Hero at Large. Who are you, J. Edgar Hoover? I'm Captain Avenger. Such a nice boy. Well, it's funny. I had the novelization of this before I saw the movie, and I remember. I it. Do you still have it? I don't have any of my novelizations, and it's a real bummer. That was part of the refrigerator box full of comics and books that vanished on one of my moves. Yeah. Fell off a truck, supposedly somewhere. But it was John Ritter stars as an actor who is trying to get a part um, as just a promotional. Um, he's supposed to be one of a number of guys. Who yeah, walks around wearing the costume of Captain Avenger, who is a superhero, and they're getting ready to make a movie, and it's all just promotional stunt, where he's going to walk around in your neighborhood and kids will see him. And when he's dressed as Captain Avenger, he actually stops a crime, and it becomes this thing where he begins to really believe, I should go do more of this. And he starts to buy into his own uh, legend that is building. And it's this really sincere, kind of goofy, sweet you can see this kind of as a PG precursor to stuff like Kick-Ass, where uh, they kind of deconstruct the notion of superheroes. Yeah. Uh, what I like about it is that this was, you know, a year and a half after Superman the movie. And you could see, like, already the wheels were spinning. Hey, how can we tap into this superhero thing without necessarily having the license to a, car, a hero and without necessarily having to do gigantic action sequences? And the answer was, do it as a comedy. Get a TV star, John Ritter hot off Three's Company and a clever Frank Capra style crowd-pleasing type uh, romantic comedy premise. Uh, him and Ann Archer, they meet cute while he's, you know, pretending to be a, a superhero. Parts of the movie are very charming and hold up well. And other parts of the movie are, of course, wildly outdated and cringy. Like I said, it's very sincere. And, and I think that is what ultimately carries it. Uh, and it is weird to me that as kids, we were big John Ritter fans, because obviously Three's Company was the reason. Three's Company was his big showcase. And he was, and I still I'll argue this with anybody. He's a, a very gifted physical comedian. Hell yes. And that show essentially existed for him to play physical comedy and do pratfalls and do big reactions. And it, it really was his showcase. It's weird because it's super smutty. And it's super cheap. Yep. And the show is not a great show. Nope. But it was on, especially <laughs> during summers when I was a kid growing up, it would be on TV every morning as part of this block of reruns. And it was something that every morning I would carve out that time and watch Three's Company, specifically because of John Ritter. And I do think there's a, a lot of people who gain that affection for him because of the show where take or leave the show, John Ritter could pretty much do no wrong. I really adored him and I wish we had... 75 great John Ritter movies instead of a few movies where he does interesting work. 
and never really quite connected and made a great, great theatrical film. Yeah, he never um, got to break out to be like, you know, a Jim Carrey type leading man. He could have if he'd had better material and more consistently. But uh, I absolutely, until the day I die, I will consider myself a John Ritter fan. He did like a couple of made for TV, like really bland romantic dramas. And he made a, a one called Unnatural Causes that was about, I think, Agent Orange. And my sister and I would watch those because John Ritter was in them. We wouldn't have watched it if it was Ted Knight. We wouldn't have watched it if it was anybody else. But if it was John Ritter or Steve yeah. Martin or Steve Martin, we would have watched it. It didn't matter what. Rest in peace, John Ritter. And if you're a fan and you haven't seen Hero at Large, definitely dig it up. It's uh, it, it's a cute curiosity, and I would be I think superhero nerds would dig it. When was the last time you actually saw Hero at Large? I actually tried to find it over the last month or so, Scott, and it's not an easy film to track down now. Probably, I don't remember how, but 10 or 12 years ago, I think maybe when the DVD came out. I I went through and tried to watch every one of the titles on streaming services this weekend. You can't. Even American Gigolo, a film that you would think would be readily available, uh, is not right now. The These movies, there's a lot of these movies that simply aren't out. And it's one of the reasons that I get tired of hearing streaming means that everything is available. It's really not true. And there's a ton of movies that we're going to end up discussing on this show that you just can't get your hands on at the moment. Yeah, we should add an asterisk now going forward. Not easily locatable. Yeah, I'd like this more to be a provocation to the people that own these movies. Um, you know, there, there's a market for this stuff. And whether it's a streaming service, whether it's, a service like a disc on demand service like Warner Archive, I really feel like we are letting our film culture down by letting so much of this stuff lay fallow and not be where people can see it. Good, bad, whatever. I think these films deserve to be yeah. in, in the wild. And in a similar way, uh, obviously, it's not the same. Great silent films being lost forever. A Hero at Large is not a cinema classic, but. That's somebody's art. You know, hundreds of people worked on that film. It doesn't deserve to just disappear into the ether. They say, well, there's no market for it. But there's no market because they don't feed that market. And they don't make these things available. So how do you know how well they're going to do or how many people actually want to see them? I think if they're not in circulation, yes, movies die and movies go away. But it's a real shame that these companies own all of these movies that they're sitting on that all they have to do is a digital master of some sort and get it into some sort of circulation again. Well, speaking of uh, obscurities that are probably difficult to find your way across, let's move over to a cult favorite called Midnight Madness, the ultimate game that requires sophisticated strategy <laughs> and rigorous self-control. Midnight Madness. It's about... It's about girls. I thought you'd never ask. It's contagious. It's Midnight Madness. Catch it at a theater near you. This is one of those movies like uh, Scavenger Hunt um, or Mad 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 World where it's a, a big ensemble comedy cast and you put them all together at the beginning of the movie. Do you break them all apart into different comedy groupings you have a lot of stuff happen and then you bring them back together at the end and here it's a scavenger hunt driven movie as well scavenger hunt of course it came out in 79 and was i had a tv cast featuring guys like richard benjamin and cloris leachman and noted political pundit scott bayo <laughs> who by the way is in our next movie but uh, this is more of a youth-oriented film and they, this was stephen first and eddie deason and of course david naughton who at that point had not done American Werewolf in London yet and was known only for the Dr. Pepper campaign. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper It looks like a live-action Disney film from the late 70s. It has that crappy television production look where clearly it's the same exact people who were making the stuff like the Kurt Russell computer who wore tennis shoes movies. Cat, Cat from Outer Space, North Avenue Irregulars, the, lot of the, the, the mid to late 70s Disney live action output is <laughs> not great. It has such a particular look, and this movie absolutely looks like those films. 
you told me that back in the day, Mid uh, Disney actually disowned Midnight Madness. It ended up coming out as Buena Vista releasing. And it was because at the last minute they freaked out and they were afraid that they might break the Disney brand by putting out a even slightly mildly controversial comedy in it. And they'd only ever done one other PG film, The, uh, the Black Hole. And that film had not been a giant hit for them. I think it was Disney didn't want it to be seen as like, now Disney is doing their version of Animal House. I think they just got scared of the themes and content of it. Yeah, there was there was a movement at that point towards raunch comedy. And I think they were very afraid to have that be what they were known for. And Disney at that point, you got to remember, this was pre-Katzenberg, pre-Eisner, before they kind of rebooted the company. They they were really not sure who they were as a studio anymore. So, yeah, as Drew said, Midnight Madness is a allegedly madcap uh, farce about these kids are doing an all night scavenger hunt. And uh, I know lots of our mutual friends have an affection for this movie. Personally, I don't see it. Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. But I, I think it's interesting that if you look uh, dig deep in this cast, you'll find uh, Michael J. Fox, Dirk Blocker. <laughs> Yes, from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And you will find uh, eventual A-list director Andy Tennant, who directed Anna and the King. <laughs> it's just like, it's got an, a non-Peewee Paul Rubens. Uh, yeah, well, it's funny, because for a long time, the Michael J. Fox appearance was this film's big claim to fame, just being a trivia footnote to his first on-screen appearance anywhere. Uh, would you recommend to fans that they dig up not Disney's Midnight Madness? Not really. And it's funny because now they've actually gone back and rebranded it as Disney when they put it out on home video like, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago. But they finally went ahead and they put the Disney name back on. Now they've reclaimed it and it's barely on video. Joe Lynch, horror filmmaker Joe Lynch, in his episode of Chillerama, uh, makes a reference to he has a fake filmmaker that he occasionally breaks out and plays as a character named Fernando Fagabifi who is this big Italian uh, exploitation filmmaker. And his last name is a joke from this movie. When I called Joe on it last week and mentioned that we were doing Midnight Madness this week, uh, I think he was a little shocked that I broke the code. Hey, Barf, have you unscrambled those letters yet? Fag of beefy? A fag of beefy. Really a whole fag of Shut up! But uh, it's, I think it's safe to say Joe Lynch has a deep fondness for this movie and for its its sense of humor. So we go from young boys behaving like uh, idiots to young ladies behaving like, well, trouble in foxes. Meet Jeannie, Annie, Madge, and Deirdre. Not exactly the girls next door. Hey, anything you want, baby? Not from you, slime. <laughs> they move to a beat all their own. They're foxes. They dare to do what others dream of. Moving out, find a place of our own. An obscurity that I was always interested about, just because I knew Adrian Lyon, he would go on to do, of course, Nine and a Half Weeks and Fatal Attraction. You know, growing up in the 80s and knowing the guy's name, I thought, oh, there's a couple I've never seen. Uh, It's kind of a... It's a soap opera, right, Drew? I mean, I- yeah, it's just teenage girls who are basically just starting to get their own independence and make a lot of terrible fucking choices about sex. Uh, this is another one of those sex is a bummer movies where everybody in this movie has terrible things happen to them because of sex. And I was Jodie Foster crazy at this point. I, I thought she could do no wrong. I thought she was so interesting in movies. Um, I think one of the things that, that will happen as we do this podcast is you're going to be able to chart all of my hopeless crushes over the course of the 80s, because that was a lot of why I would go see something. And man, it makes everything about being a teenager look awful and horrifying. In particular, I want to point out Randy Quaid's performance in this movie. He is (laughs) such a creep. It is such a gross performance from him. I I think uh, perhaps a a, uh, early precursor to to Randy Quaid in general. So if you're a a huge Jodie Foster fan, and you absolutely must chart all of the uh, the feature film appearances of Scott Bayo, then make sure you dig up Foxes. Uh, aside from those who are fascinated by Adrian Lyne's career and or Jodie Foster's. Uh, well, and Sherry Curie, who I uh, I think one of the things that's that I love about just her being in the movie is, you know, she was the uh, the guitarist for The Runaways. Her being kind of a real 
out of control, wild. That was her reputation. So it's interesting. I Jodie Foster felt to me like she was trying it on. Whereas Sherry Curie, she really was that wild, lunatic, wild child who I think they're doing the movie about. So I remember when I saw it, there was some real excitement about the fact that she was the real deal next to Foster in the movie. Oh, and the soundtrack. There's some great music in Foxes. I'll give it that. But um, aside from that, uh, most I think most movie geeks are like us, though. When you hear about a movie like this and you're like, wait. The director of Nine and a Half Weeks, Jodie Foster and Randy Quaid and Scott Baio, they don't really need to be sold. They're either interested or they're not, just based on the description. Our opinions might be interesting and all, but I'm hoping that people just be like, we don't care. I want to dig that movie up. It's like uh, it's like cinematic archaeology. It's like, oh, I've heard of that. Now I really want to go dig it up. That's part of the fun of the show, hopefully. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think anything we're saying here is going to dissuade somebody if they're interested. I think the thing that's that's most interesting is that so many of these films uh, don't get spoken about, don't get brought up, don't get talked about when we talk about the 80s. And they're just as much a part of it. You know, Midnight Madness to me is just as vivid an 80s memory as something like the Goonies. But one of them is given more weight simply because of how it's landed into geek culture. And I think part of what we can do with this show is rebalance that and make sure that some of these films are mentioned again, just mentioning them gives them that extra little bit of life. Here's a film that got a new life a couple of years ago. It's a movie that I was fascinated to see as a kid because it was directed by the man who did The Exorcist. And even as a 12, 13-year-old kid, I knew the name William Friedkin. But for some reason, my mother wasn't all that interested in renting Cruising. Drew, why was my mother not that interested in letting me see Cruising when I was 12? Excuse me. Could I ask you about these? What about them? What are they for? Well, like blue Hank in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler. Right side, you're a buyer. The yellow one left side means you give golden shower. Right side, you receive. The red one oh, means you say anything you want. Uh, I'm going I'm to go home and think about it. Um, Because she was a responsible parent? <laughs> um... Yeah, good lord. This is uh, this one was hard to find for a long time in general, and when it did finally make its DVD debut, you're right, it was a big deal. And I'm the same way as you were. This is a movie I knew about for a long time before I finally got to see it. And it was built up as this giant legendary thing. This movie was intensely disliked by the gay community. We talked about it a little bit last week during the Can't Stop the Music segment. Uh, they were shooting in New York at the same time, and this is the film that the gay community was afraid of. Uh, It's about a serial killer who's uh, killing people in the gay, hardcore sex bondage scene in New York. And Al Pacino plays a cop who goes undercover to to try and track him down. And it sounds very simple. It was a film that a lot of people tried to make and that went through a lot of hands before it ended up as this movie. Certainly, I think William Friedkin was very serious about what he was trying to do. But you look at it now, it's so insane that this is a film starring Al Pacino at all, much less that it was a film that anybody ever thought was going to be a commercial release in major theaters. It's not as explicit and nonstop as the urban legends uh, made it sound, but it is undeniably an unpleasant, openly explicit look at this overheated fantasy of what the gay culture was like in New York at this time. It's not reality. It is based on actual events, and I I do believe that it had good intentions, but the movie might as well be called Gay Panic. You know what I mean? It's as if to to get the story across, you had to overemphasize every gay character's voice, and you had to overemphasize every cliche. Cruising feels like something that barely escaped from the late 70s and made it into 1980. William Friedkin being a tourist and being somebody who's coming in and looking at the gay culture from his perspective... You know, he had done Boys in the Band earlier. Certainly nobody can say that Freakin' wasn't interested in where people fit, where gay culture fit into mainstream culture. It was obviously on his mind from the beginning of his career. But with Cruising, there is a degree of exploitation that's going on here that's really yeah, uh, in yeah. your face. And it, is, yeah, it, is, it plays like an earnest drama and then kind of a seedy mystery thriller 
And then it's just like a broad, nasty horror movie. It's like three movies in one. And I think the first right. movie is pretty interesting, and the other two are not. But it's a monster movie if the monster that you're waiting for is a dude fisting another dude. Like, that is the thing that is most outlandish and terrifying and oh my god and there's a sense that William Friedkin thinks he discovered gay sex rough gay sex till he shoots it in this film there is a movie that came out a few years ago that is an interesting footnote to this because there's a you know part of the urban legend of the movie is that there was a 45 minute hardcore gay sex fantasia that got cut out of this film and James Franco and some collaborators got together and made a film called Interior Leather Bar which is essentially them recreating what they imagined the 45 minutes of insane, explicit gay sex from cruising would have been if it had been left in the film. And it speaks to the film's weird, lingering reputation in the gay community and to the idea that the stuff that gets cut out of a movie gains a power all of its own. Like the notion that, oh my God, whatever they had to cut out of this must have been absolutely crazy. And again, anybody first exploring the notion of being gay and what that made if this was the first gay themed film they saw yeah what a bummer what a a nightmare horrifying yeah it's like you said earlier this is like the gay version of sex as a bummer (laughs) like not no pun intended a real miserable yeah uh well the truth about camp is that camp doesn't know it's camp real camp if you're trying to be campy that's one thing this movie is camp by accident there's a moment in this film that for years was an inside joke between friends of mine and I when Al Pacino is trying to pick this guy up and this guy says, uh, hey, how big are you? And Al Pacino's answer is, you know, body size. And that line just <laughs> makes me laugh every single It's The movie doesn't know how ridiculous it is. And because no. it is so earnest about it, it yes. becomes horrifyingly funny in place. That was uh, that was Susan Sontag's definition of camp is failed seriousness. Camp is not broadly goofy on purpose. Camp is when you try to be very sincere and earnest and serious, and you fail. Well, speaking of Dark and Ugly, what is our next movie, Scott? <laughs> dark and Ugly is a good way to describe William Lustig's 1980s slasher. Maniac, you can lock your doors, but you can't lock the madman out of your mind. Uh, I think that aside from Tom Savini's absolutely fantastic fantastic gore effects and i'm about to upset a lot of my old horror brethren but i'm not a huge fan of maniac uh, i think the effects are amazing uh, in every way and deserve to be mentioned alongside the best horror practical effects ever maybe the movie is too successful <laughs> it's too effective because it's just grimy and grungy and sweaty and it's about a freaky looking weirdo who kills women and scalps them and puts their scalps on mannequins and you look at a movie like this and you start to empathize with the film critics who back in the day in 1980 through 87 or so just said it's a plotless collection of murders and i'm responding to exactly what lustig wanted to do anybody listening to this might argue well then if he got the result that he wanted from you then that makes it a successful film i i don't think it's a particularly good movie well i'm with you i saw this on on cable Uh, The first time I saw it and I was, I'll be honest, I was scared shitless to sit down to watch it and very, very worried about it. And part of it was because of Fangoria. When they did their big article about this movie, it was traumatic. It was one of the most gruesome, explicit layouts I think they ever did for anything. This was also the exact article and the movie that led my dad to ban Fangoria completely from our house. My dad used to shred my Fangorias and leave them on my pillow, tear them in half and leave the pieces on my pillow as if to say, don't bring this home anymore. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? In our dad's defense, without the context of the film, I could see how parents would look at a still image from Friday the 13th or Maniac or I Spit on Your Grave or what have you and think, I don't know if I want my children looking at that. In the context of a movie where a frame goes by in a quarter of a second, that's different. But when it's caught forever on film, I don't know if I'd want my 8, 10, 12-year-old son looking at what I consider to be vicious, gruesome material. I completely understand what set my dad off. And it was the fact that we were looking at it in different ways. For me, it was I was fascinated by how practical makeup was done. And I like looking at this and thinking about the sculptures and thinking about, okay, where's the rig? How do they do this effect? 
your dad thinks, oh my God, why is my son interested in a gruesome murderer? What was fun for me, and I'm sure you had this when you were younger, is that there was a VHS era there where me and like eight or nine neighborhood kids, we would try and like one up each other. Yo, did you see this one humongous? And he'd break out this VHS of humongous. And we'd watch it be like, eh, wouldn't I? We didn't get then once in a while, a maniac or a blood sucking freaks or a I spit on your grave or gates of hell would pop up yeah. and we'd all like, All right. You know, you had that scared little tingle of this might be the horror movie that freaks us out for real. Yeah. And Maniac to its credit, was one of those litmus test slasher movies that you weren't part of the horror crew in Northeast Philly unless you had seen Bloodsucking Freaks and Maniac and all the all the nasty, nasty ones. To its, I guess, credit, uh, it is unrelenting about it. And there's a very distinct New York vibe to this movie. There's, there's that Abel Ferrara school of exploitation yes. that this feels like. It's very grimy. It's very, very dirty. And I mean dirty sexually. It, there is something about the movie that feels genuinely unpleasant and unhinged and unhealthy. And you say that and like my brain splits into two parts, which is that proves that it's a well-made horror movie. And then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but it's just so unrelentingly ugly. There's no enjoyment. You, you, there's no characters to get behind or empathize with. There's no plot to follow. It's just like literally a collection of dispatches, a collection of it murders. Feels- in that way, it feels like a precursor to Henry Porter, a serial killer, where I don't think you're meant to find anything entertaining. Yeah. And that's how it feels. It feels like you just spend a couple of hours thinking like this person. Yeah. And I think that's what is most upsetting about it. If you're a serious horror nut and you want to see something that freaked us out when we were kids, definitely check out 1980s Maniac and definitely check out the the Elijah Wood remake as well, because then it takes a, a first person perspective. And while it's less uh, visually disturbing in a gore way, it's emotionally disturbing in other ways, you know? So Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the few horror, whenever people say, oh, remakes, remakes, Maniac is one of the recent ones that I can point to and say, there's an improvement. Yeah. Now here's how we're coming to a movie that will never be remade. Drew, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Never, never be remade. And and, in my house, never be rewatched. This is, uh, this (laughs) is one of those films. Wait, wait, wait. uh, I was fascinated by this film before i saw it the cast the premise the poster the vhs cover the hbo description in the book i should love this movie but i i do not and nor does anyone i'm sure saturn 3 a technologically perfect world where mistakes are impossible because the impossible is unthinkable this year, the inhabitants of Saturn III are about to experience the unthinkable. Something is wrong on Saturn III. Rated R. Check local newspapers for a theater near you. Guys, this is outer space science fiction film co-starring Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> and Harvey Keitel. Oh, and Harvey Keitel, and it's but they're on a space station by themselves, and Harvey Keitel shows up, and there's a killer robot, and that's about it. There's no story. There's no um, there's no sense of coherence to it, and this is one of those films. John Barry, who, if you're not familiar with John Barry's work, he was a production designer, and he was one of the best production designers in the business. He did Clockwork Orange, he did the first Star Wars, he did Superman the movie. This guy was unbelievable. This was going to be his film to direct, and Stanley Donen was a producer on it. Stanley Donen, for those of you not familiar with the name, is the director of Singing in the Rain, which blows my mind that one filmography can encompass Singing in the Rain and Saturn Three. Yeah. <laughs> what? How'd you get to that? <laughs> well, this was this was going to be John Barry directing, and then. Yeah. He crapped out like he couldn't do it. It was it was literally a case of they got on set and nothing worked. Kirk Douglas lost his mind. And when Barry realized it just wasn't going to work and Kirk Douglas was was starting to really freak, Stanley Donen had to step in and direct it. It doesn't work on any level. The robot in this movie, he was going to be this unbelievable villain and he was going to be incredibly memorable. This robot cost a million dollars to build and is unmemorable in every sense. It's like a big pile of metal and spaghetti. What what bugs me about Saturn 3 is that they were clearly going for like the Soylent Green, Silent Running 
type of cerebral sci-fi mixed with it. See, it seems like somebody halfway through went, "Ooh, Alien was a big hit." It's not good. It's not good. Tell, uh, and oh, not no. only that, but Harvey Cartel's entire voice is. Ro- tell them who it's dubbed by. Roy Dotrice. It's it's one of those. <laughs> it's it's an insane choice. Well, I've always been a tremendous admirer of, of Harvey Cartel. I think he's a brilliant actor. So the idea of dubbing his performance seemed very odd to me. Give it a simple instruction. Ask it something. Harvey does have a very American accent, very sort of New York yeah. accent. Yes. And what they wanted was a, a more transatlantic accent, you know, so there was a, a slight flavor of the English in it. It wasn't entirely American. You've never heard of blues? You really need to shut life out here, don't you? I, I don't know, because it's not like Harvey Keitel hadn't done anything before. It's not like this was his first film. This is 1980. He's yeah, already I, done Mean Streets. He's already established. He's already Harvey fucking Keitel. You know, you get, I guarantee you the original, the original track was... Like he walks onto the spaceship and he's supposed to be some ominous interstellar gangster of some sort. And he probably sounded like, hey, why don't you take me down to the river, these does, and get me a hot dog? He probably sounded like a joke from Brooklyn. Yeah, but it's not like he was hiding that. It's not like you didn't see that in his other films. It is mind boggling to me that you hire a guy like Harvey Keitel and dub him at the end. It's not even like Greystoke, because in Greystoke, you can argue it was Andy McDowell's first film. Nobody knew how she would do. They realized at the end that it just didn't work and they had to do something. It's not his first movie. It's not like he hadn't been on screen. It's not like he wasn't known as an incredibly New York-centric actor. <laughs> yeah, it's probably just jarring to hear a strong Brooklyn accent in a space station. <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, and this is part of the subgenre of sort of horror sci-fi that I love. Sort of tongue-in-cheek, sort of unabashedly, I love deadly horny robots or deadly horny computers, either one. Demon Seed, this movie, they are ridiculous to me and very, very funny on some level. We'll get to a horny robot movie in a couple of years where one is kind of done comedically with Virginia Madsen, but we won't won't get into that now. Right now, what we're going to get into... Um, This next film that we're doing, this is one of those that I I have uh, particular nostalgia for because it was a movie that I saw with my dad. And my dad kind of had his holy trinity of movie stars. One of them was Steve McQueen. This was very near the end of Steve McQueen's career. This was the last film he actually completed, and he was incredibly sick while he was working on it, uh, but hid it from everybody. Uh, this is a movie called Tom Horn. In 1903, one of the last great American heroes alive was Tom Horn. During this time, a special breed of men evolved, rugged individuals who lived by a special code of honor. They became heroes. Men of the West, Indian trackers. They became legends. And then they were gone. Steve McQueen is Tom Horn, who became a legend. Uh, He was not the only person trying to make a movie about Tom Horn. William Goldman was working on it. And then when he got fired... Uh, by Steve McQueen, Goldman took his script and went and made it somewhere else with Jack Starrett, and they ended up making a movie with David Carradine called Mr. Horn. Uh, That came out a year before this one. Robert Redford was also trying to make one, and McQueen basically raced him to see who could get theirs to theaters first. Uh, Don Siegel, the legendary action filmmaker, was supposed to direct the film. Uh, He and McQueen bumped heads in a huge way, and after uh, Don Siegel quit, They went through several other filmmakers, and McQueen wanted to do it himself, but you can't. The DGA won't let an actor take over a film after they've started shooting. Uh, There's a rule that keeps them from doing that, because otherwise they feel like directors would get fired left and right, and actors would just take over the films. So the guy they brought on, uh, this is his only feature film credit, William Nord, and he's a uh, TV director who'd done a million TV shows. Uh, so he was a guy that I, it felt like McQueen brought in specifically to have somebody do what he wanted. The sad part is for all of the blood, sweat and tears it took to get this thing to the screen and to make this dream project of McQueen's happen. Uh, it's not a very good movie. It tries to be this mythic story about a uh, frontier scout and tracker who was considered a legend. And he was the guy that you went to when you had to catch somebody. These ranchers hire him to deal with some cattle rustlers. And in doing so, 
he ends up killing a kid and gets accused of murder and ends up standing trial and getting hanged. And this is all a true story. Tom Hearn was a real person with this insane personal history. The movie just doesn't work. It doesn't hang together at all. It's just, it's a shame because you, you know, there's, you don't get many shots to do this kind of, I know with Clint Eastwood, when he did Unforgiven, I feel like that was him trying to make his big summation of the American West towards the end of his career after playing with it for so many films. I felt like this was McQueen trying to do the same thing and missing the mark. So, Scott, this next movie, this is Teflon for me. Well, one thing you can always tell about a society is by looking at, like, what their social commentaries and their their comedies are about. In the late 70s, you saw a lot of comedies about the gas crisis. We talked about Americathon in one of our test episodes, and there was one called Gas. In the 80s, you had suburban middle-class adults who were, like, going crazy. Once they settle into suburbia, what is there left to do? There is a a bizarre farce called Middle-Age Crazy. The Middle-Age Crazy epidemic is spreading. Look for these warning signs. Realizing that one beautiful woman is about three less than you want. Telling your mirror what you do for a living. I build taco stands. Impulsively trading your old car for a $40,000 Porsche. Bruce Stern and Margaret in Middle Age Crazy, a funny movie that's very catching. Rated R. It's just basically about a bunch of middle-aged married men in the midlife crisis. They want to get laid, buy a new car, uh, sleep with their friends' wives. You know, it sounds like I'm a kid who's making up a book report for a book he hasn't read, but I haven't seen this film in probably 20 years. It does have Bruce Dern and Anne Margaret. But it, it doesn't even have like a great supporting cast like a lot of films in this era did. I mean, it's based on a song, for Christ's sake. The movie's based on a song. Today he traded his big 98 Oldsmobile. He got a heck of a deal on a new Porsche car. Well, and here's what's crazy about it for me is it is literally gone. That is in its own way kind of a review because I the way my brain works, you could tell me 10 times something I have to do this week and I would have trouble remembering it. Like I my, new memories don't get carved very easily into the uh, the marble. Um, but stuff with movies, I it gets burned on the hard drive. I can recall theaters I saw movies in from this era. I can recall where I sat in the theater. I recall movies largely i remember most of the details about the films so when i say that this movie is gone completely that is really weird because i remember the poster i remember seeing theater lobbies i remember hearing the song on the radio i remember the newspaper ads when it opened and i do remember when it showed up on cable and i set up the vcr to record it and i remember getting it and i remember thinking oh i finally got middle-aged crazy and i'll watch this and i know i watched it but I couldn't tell you a single scene or image or character beat or anything. And that is kind of wild. I feel bad even talking shit about a movie I haven't seen in 20 years. But, hey, if anybody who worked on Middle-Aged Crazy is mad at me, hit me up on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, But now here's one that you like and I don't. (laughs) Sci-fi comedy called Simon. (laughs) Directed by Marshall Brickman, who was a frequent collaborator of Woody Allen, his co-writer on Annie Hall. It is an Alan Arkin movie, and I think I like it more than you, but I would not say that I'm a fan. I think it's really ambitious. It's a movie about a group of scientists from this think tank, and the think tank exists essentially just to fuck with culture. They do all sorts of crazy experiments just to see what people will do. They kidnap a professor, and they brainwash him into believing that he is an alien. They completely and utterly convince him that he was dropped here, that he spent most of his life with his memory erased, and that they've restored it. And then he escapes from where they have him and ends up becoming a TV celebrity. And so the film becomes this larger referendum on pop culture and about uh, how things get digested. And But, the but isn't, it, is, isn't it just a much sillier retread of being there? 
Yes, I, I think to some degree. Now you got to remember that these were shooting almost concurrently. I I don't know that I would believe that Simon is a reaction to being there. I think they were kind of chasing the same ideas, but that idea was very pervasive at the time that the celebrity was getting weirder and weirder and people were becoming celebrities for weirder and weirder things. They had no idea how weird it was going to get. You look back at Simon now and it's fairly innocuous because if somebody was an alien from outer space, yes, that would be worth being a celebrity. Now we people are celebrities because they had a sex tape or because they have a big butt or because they did something ridiculous or because they fell down and now they become a celebrity for that. So it's deteriorated even further than I think they could have ever believed. What I do like about the film is I like some of the places that they make uh, room for some of the comic performers. Austin Pendleton does some really good work in this. Madeline Kahn gets introduced early and there's some kind of great jokes with her at the setup. Then she just vanishes from the movie. And that's a huge mistake. Uh, I would say, if nothing else, there's one moment in the movie worth watching where Alan Arkin goes through all of human evolution. And it's this routine that he does, starting from Amoeba all the way up to Simon. It is such a great standalone piece of physical comedy. Just one performance scene uh, that I would say just for that, track this movie down. I will never say a bad word about Alan Arkin. And while I think that he is a brilliant collaborative actor, he works great in an ensemble. I think I have trouble like him in like a Jim Carrey-esque type of a comedy vehicle. You know, it's it's really like what persona you like, like him in. This is radically different than stuff he's done in movies like uh, The In-Laws or Freebie and the Bean. Because, you know, he was a Second City guy. He was one of the early Second City guys. And I can see here kind of how that would have been built as a showcase for him to get to play different characters and to do different things. Not totally dissimilar than like the Jerry Lewis vehicles, but like those, it's hit and miss. And when it works, it works. And when it doesn't, it's deadly. Now, Drew, I think we're going to get into, well, easily one of the most controversial films of 1980, the wildly expensive X-rated turkey, the film that Roger Ebert called the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the film to which we're referring? Caligula. They spoke of it first in whispers. Then it took the media by storm. Password. Scrooge. So be it. Bob Guccione and Penthouse Films International present Caligula. If only all Rome had just one neck. Now, if I were to tell you that this was a period piece about a Roman emperor, very nihilistic and hedonistic, and the film stars John Gielgud, Malcolm McDowell, Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirren, you would not expect it to be a gore-soaked porno film. Well, and I think Bob Guccione, the publisher of Penthouse, that was his original intention, was to make a real movie with hardcore sex in it. And certainly he's not the first person to think of it. I think, you know, William Friedkin on this episode, we talked about this, the, the notion that he was trying to break boundaries and do something that nobody had ever seen on film before. And lots of filmmakers go down this road, and lots of filmmakers get seduced by the idea that they're going to make a real movie that has hardcore sex in it. They've never really found a line that doesn't turn into pornography. For this movie, there were a lot of people that worked on it. Um, Lena Wertmuller wrote one of the original drafts of the script, which was thrown out. Gore Vidal became a screenwriter on it and worked on a lot of it. Uh, Tinto Brass was brought in to be the director. It is notable that both Tinto Brass and Gore Vidal disowned the film at different points and for different reasons. It's five or six different movies jammed together. There's about 100 different cuts of the film from over the years because of different legal jurisdictions, uh, because of different people taking their shot at cutting the movie, because of disagreements between different filmmakers on it. It's not a good movie in any form. There is no good version of Caligula. There's no cut of this film that works. It is so ugly, so unrelentingly ugly that the decadence and the sex and everything else just becomes white noise after a while. It is just awful to look at. It's an unpleasant movie to sit through. You're tempted to immediately want to run out and see it or grab it so you can, you know, put that notch on your belt. But man, life is too short. 
it has the kind of reputation that something like Solo does, where it's an endurance test, and you kind of have to watch it. It's just despicable junk, though. It is junk. And I can see why the actors who are in it, who shot their scenes, not knowing that there was going to be hardcore pornography in the film, were really upset by it when it finally came out, because all of a sudden there's John Gielgud and hardcore sex. And for him, that was, it probably felt like a violation of, the agreement that you have with a filmmaker, that your image isn't going to get suddenly married to something else that you disapprove of wholeheartedly. I, as a endless fan of Malcolm McDowell, I suppose his over-the-top performance is the most entertaining thing in the movie. I, I, I know you and I like to consider ourselves charitable, fair-minded film fans, even something that's vilified. We'll try and you know look at the director's intentions or look at the filmmaker's goals Movies like Caligula are just as bad as everybody ever said. And I, I don't know if it's one of the worst films I've ever seen, but kudos to Roger Ebert for not mincing words. On that note, we are going to wrap it up. But uh, look at the ground we covered this week, man. Really enjoyed this. Uh, the next episode we do will be March of 1980. We're talking about films as different as uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, A Lady in the Tramp issue, and a little film from Australia called Mad Max. Drew, Thanks for another great episode. Thank you for all the great feedback that I have received. Personally, Drew and I have both gotten very nice feedback from our friends on Twitter. We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks. I love deadly horny robots.